Okay, so we're going over four topics. This morning, I know it's in you guys' book, and you guys could just read ahead, but I'm just going to say them because when I'm in a class, I love to know where we're going. That's like my thing. Um, so we're going to go over Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Yeah, big stuff today. <laughs> and all of these things can be categorized as the final days of Jesus on earth. So I'll say it again. The arrest, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. Cool? Sound good? Also, I love interactions, so feel free to ask questions. I'll just preface this, though. I reserve the right to still be a student myself. So you may ask a question that I don't know the answer to. Luckily, Pastor Tondra is going to be in here with us, too. So, Oh, yeah, that's right. She's a wizard back there. So, <laughs> Okay, so let's jump right in. We're going to start with the arrest. Um, there's a bunch of scripture here that hopefully you guys got to read because um, it's super dense. There's a ton of it. Hello. But so we're going to talk about Jesus being arrested. I just want to talk about where was he before this happened real quick. So he's he gets arrested in the garden, right? The garden of Gethsemane. He's been there all night. He's been praying with his disciples, um, sort of. They've been they've been slacking on the job, but he's been there. He's been praying. He's been stressing. And honestly, this is one of my favorite places in scripture ever because I think you see the real tangible human heart of Jesus in the garden. Um, if you ever think about lamenting and grieving, that's something that we as humans go through so regularly. And this is one of those times where you get to see that on display in Jesus's life, that he is not exempt from being a human and from going through emotions like that, which is really cool. So he's in the garden, right? And then the arrest happens. So the focus first here is going to be Matthew 26, verse 47 through 56, we're not going to read that today for time, but hopefully you did read it. I'll probably reference it a little bit as we go through these questions. Everyone feel good right now? Okay, good. Great. <laughs> okay, so let's start with this first question. So this is one actually I hadn't thought about till I studied it out for this course, but was the arrest of Jesus legal? So was arresting Jesus in the way that it was done in the garden at night legal? Was that something that should happen? And the, the simple answer is no. No, it was not a legal action for them to do. It was super manipulated. Um, the whole thing was simply just to get rid of Jesus because he really disturbed the leaders of, of Jerusalem. Um, the Jewish leaders just really didn't like him. So they kind of just really manipulated the system to figure out some sort of way to get this guy arrested. And I really believe they believed if they could just get him arrested then the system would do its own thing and get him crucified pretty easily. Um, so here are the two main reasons that the arrest was not legal. Number one, if you're writing these down, is that at the time, Jesus wasn't doing anything. <laughs> like, you know, they, they like, they come into the garden and he's praying, like he's just there praying and they arrest him. He's not doing anything in that moment to come against uh, the Jewish church, uh, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. He's not doing anything. He, he's just in the garden with his disciples and they come and they arrest him. And then number two, there had not been official accusation laid before uh, a court of people, a council of people by the account of two witnesses, which actually is the law, right? At that time, you needed two witnesses in order to arrest somebody. It's kind of like how now you need a search warrant in order to jump into somebody's house, right? As a police officer. And so in the same way, they, they didn't have these two witnesses that were necessary for this to be legal. And you know, what's really interesting about this is that the Pharisees, um, they're trying to arrest Jesus because he's disrupting their law but they break the law to 
arrest Jesus. And they may be breaking Roman law, you know, not necessarily uh, the law of Moses, but that's what they're doing. They're messing with the law to arrest Jesus because he's breaking the law. It's crazy. So super manipulated. The arrest of Jesus in a nutshell is not legal. It was not legal. So that leads us to our next question pretty easily. Why was Jesus arrested at night? Um, I just want to put this quick note in here. When I was studying this, I read this. So when Jesus is in the garden, he is like perfectly in control of the situation the entire time. It's really cool because he goes there to pray. And then right after he prays, hey guys, if anyone needs me to go back, just let me know. And I will give you guys answers to what we already went over. We only went over one question. So y'all are doing pretty good. Um, Okay. So the rest at night, he's in the garden of Gethsemane, right? And he's there with his disciples. They're praying. He's crying. He's, he's working through these feelings. And then he says, you know, stand up. My, my accuser is here. And it's like, you see that Jesus is actually, he's in control like the whole time. You know, he's not in the garden unaware. He literally knows the second that Judas is going to walk up before it happens. You know, he's not like, oh my gosh, they're here. He's like, stand up. They're here. And I'm sure the disciples turned around and were like, oh shoot, they are here. Like what? You know what I mean? That's how it happens. So I just think it's cool. He's in, he's in control of the situation, but he's still able to grieve and go through the emotions that he's going through before this. So to answer this question, why was Jesus arrested at night? So we already talked about this. The arrest wasn't legal. It was super faulty. It was shaky. Um, Really, you know, if anyone had come up to them and been like, wait, why are you arresting this guy? This doesn't make sense. You know, they don't have any evidence. Oh, well, you know, uh, they don't have anything to give. It, it wouldn't have gone over very well. So what they decided to do is they decided to do this in secret and at night. So, you know, it could have been early in the morning. It could have been at some time when nobody else was going to be there. And the reason they did this is because Jesus did have a lot of followers. They knew that if they arrested him in person, like in the middle of the day, in the middle of the temple, somewhere where a bunch of people were going to be, a mob could form, um, people could backlash, you know, and then their plan wouldn't be able to be carried out. So they did it at night to keep it even more under wraps. So the whole thing is just 100% sketchy from every aspect. The arrest was just totally out there manipulated. Um, And again, just to put this in, they didn't have the two witnesses they needed for it to be legal. They only had the accomplice, which was Judas. So they had him tell them where to find Jesus in secret and went to do that all secret, as secretive as possible. That's why the rest was at night. Am I going through these at a good pace, Tondre? Do I need to slow down? Okay, cool. Awesome. Okay, so next one. Do you guys have everything? Good? Okay, cool. <laughs> Who planned the arrest of Jesus? The chief priests and the Sanhedrin who made up the Jewish council. And then they set the whole plan in motion. They'd been working on this for a really long time. And these are the same people that we read in the gospels, just like hounding Jesus with all these crazy questions constantly. Um, They planned the arrest from the beginning. They really wanted to do this. And they're the ones who carried it out. Uh, As soon as their inside person, Judas, had this idea of like, I know where you can find Jesus in secret and I can show you who he is and I can, you know, all that good stuff. Um, They were ready to carry it out and perverse the law, even though they had no actual foundation for it. So again, they manipulated the system against Jesus to make it happen. And they do this to appease themselves as leaders of the uh, Jewish council. Yes, please. Exactly. And 
They just put it all aside. Right. Right. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier. It's that their their main reasons, they don't have the witnesses, but their reasons against Jesus are because he's making their laws, he's upsetting their laws, which are more than the Ten Commandments because they added a bunch of stuff. But then they go and thwart the main laws to get him the way that they want. So it's very sinful. It's pretty crazy. Um, okay. So who planned the arrest? The chief priest, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. If anyone needs me to spell Sanhedrin, just let me know. <laughs> Why were there so many guards? So if you guys went and read this, you'll read, hold on, let me, let me find it. I have it right here in my notes. Um, bless you. There it is. Verse 47, Matthew 26, 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12 arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent by the chief priests and the elders of the people. So that answers that previous question. But I've never thought about this again until studying it out for this class. Why were there so many guards? Like it literally says there's a large crowd of guards. It's not just, I always picture like two guards, you know? This is like a mob of crowd, like guards with swords and clubs. Like they're ready to fight, you know? And they come in. So why were there so many guards? Well, clearly it's because they thought of Jesus as a really dangerous guy. Like they've probably heard of... Jesus who heals the sick and commands the wind and the waves and heals 5,000 or feeds 5,000 people at a time. And you know, Lazarus and all the people coming back from the dead and just all this stuff. So they're like ready to fight like this, this like big military guy who has all of these superpowers, you know, and they come in with all these guards cause they truly see him as dangerous. Um, imagine what was going through their head though. Like they probably came in a bunch of them, tons of guards. They see Jesus and they're like, oh, this is just a guy. Okay, cool. And then he answers like, I am. And they all fall to the ground. <laughs> like, I just imagine them being like, oh no, <laughs> what did I sign up for? You know, but obviously that was not necessary because Jesus wasn't going to fight them. Um, and he knew that. They didn't know that though. They thought that this arrest was going to be a fight. Right. Right. There's power with that. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just like Pilate, I think maybe some of them were like, why did I sign up to do this? <laughs> this is God. Um, one thing to note here with so many guards Obviously, they thought Jesus was a dangerous man, but he wasn't. I mean, he's God, but he is all-powerful because he also is God. So one thing to think about here is that he really could have thwarted the plan if he wanted to. I mean, first of all, they're arresting him at night and alone on purpose so that they can manipulate the law and arrest him illegally. So if Jesus really wanted to, why didn't he just stay in public during the day and stay away? I mean, he could have avoided that. He, they didn't want to arrest him during the day because it would make a mob. So why didn't he stay in the temple? Then, then they couldn't have arrested him. It's like everything about this. For sure. Like it, it would have been a huge, huge thing, right? And so, but Jesus like also, it, I think it's obedience. Like he's like, yes, like I'm putting myself in the place where your plans will work. 
your sinful plans will work. And I'm putting myself here because this has to happen. And he said that so many times. But I think we do have to remember that like, you know, we think about, we'll get to this later when we talk about the crucifixion. But on the cross, like Jesus could have taken himself down in the same way. He could have avoided all of this. Like we see situations in the world today where, you know, the legal system or whatever is manipulated and we're like, wow, that's so unfair. And it's like, that's how it is for Jesus. Man, that's so unfair. That shouldn't have happened that way. This arrest is not okay. He could have avoided it though, but he didn't because he's obedient and he, he was coming to, to do the mission, the will of God. So I think it's really a testimony to like his submission to what God had called him to do on earth for us. Um, Yes, and he was fulfilling scripture the entire time, just following right along, which when you think about him being clearly fully human, able to sit in the garden and be sweating blood and crying and and just trying to work through these emotions, like I'm sure it occurred to him as a person, but he's not sinful, so he wouldn't do it. You know what I mean? Like, But he totally could have. And to me, that's so powerful that he really could have sidetracked everything that God was trying to do there. So that answers all the questions for Jesus's arrest. Is there any other thoughts or questions before we move on to the crucifixion? Anyone? Pastor Tondra, you have anything you want to say? Okay, great. Awesome. Cool. So that's the arrest. Now Jesus is arrested. Obviously, we're going into the crucifixion now. Next section, the crucifixion. Focus verse here is Mark 15, 21 through 47. Huge section there. It goes all the way from when he's carrying the cross to the burial of Jesus. And then Luke 23, 26 through 56. Again, hopefully you guys read that. If you didn't go back and read that, I'll probably reference it a little bit, but it's just such a giant chunk. Unless other teachers are reading it, I think we're just going to keep going. <laughs> cool. Okay, so this first question is this. Why was Jesus crucified on a cross? So why the cross? Like why not some other way? Has anyone in here seen the, the TV show, The Chosen? It's an interesting show, right? And I'm not going to say like it's the best. I mean, you know, every show like that, it's a show about Jesus. They all, they're all just doing their best, right? That show is so interesting. They show this one scene that really has stuck with me for a long time. And it's earlier in Jesus's ministry and he's walking to Jerusalem and he walks by people being crucified because this was a Roman practice for criminals, for slaves. I mean, this was like the way that they executed people. And so I've never thought about that before, how like he would have seen it in his lifetime. You know, when we think about uh, the death penalty or things like that here, as gruesome as that may be, we all know what we're talking about, the different ways that they do that, or we've heard about this or whatever. And so it's, it's crazy to me to think about that. Like Jesus probably saw people on a cross before he took the cross. So it's a crazy way to die for us, but the crucifixion was actually a practice back then. It was super common and it was what you did for criminals, for slaves. It was a very extreme way of dying. Um, it was reserved by the Roman government for slaves, for criminals. And so even though Jesus was innocent, he takes the sin of the world spiritually. And so he dies the death that a sinner would have died at that time. Um, Naturally, he was really seen as bringing considerable unrest to Jerusalem, and it was Jerusalem's leader, leaders who petitioned the Roman leaders to execute him, and so he was executed in the Roman way. And that was, would have happened if the leaders had taken somebody who really did do something wrong and said, we want you to execute this person. The Romans would have done that the same way. Does that make sense to everyone? Good. Y'all are quiet this morning. Yes. Is it in Hosea? 
it is in the Old Testament somewhere. It prophesied. Um, yes, he would die on a tree. He would be whipped. He would be beaten. It's actually, I think, in a few places. Okay, next question. What did the Jews ask of Jesus when he was on the cross? This is the stuff that if you read this and you love Jesus, you're just so annoyed. You're like, leave him alone. <laughs> Stop asking him these questions. So what did they ask him when he was on the cross? Uh, they asked for a sign. They say, if you really are the son of God, why don't you? Um, he saved others, but he can't save himself. I mean, they say all of these things. And this really is like a dare to God. It's like when you ask for a sign for God, they're, they're daring God. I dare you. I dare you to take off. It kind of sounds like uh, the enemy in the desert when he's, you know, jump off of this building and the angels will take care of you. It's the same thing, but this is coming from people. They're mocking him. And one thing that's interesting is that even the believers that were there, I wonder why they didn't have the mindset of, I know he could save himself. Why doesn't he? Because that's how we think about it now. Like, oh, I know Christ could take himself off of the cross. So why doesn't he? You know, none of them said that. They say, well, if you are, if you are, and I believe some of them, you know, believed in him and were watching him die and they were confused and they're getting frustrated at him. Uh, but Jesus, of course, he has mercy for them right there on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And Guzik says this about this. He says, in this, Jesus fulfilled his own commandment to love your enemies. He fulfills his own commandment. Bless those who curse you. Do good for those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you literally on the cross, Jesus fulfills his commandment right then and there. Yeah. Right. They wanted to see what he would do, but Jesus was submitted. Just like in the garden, he submitted to, to what God wants to do. Okay, next question. What was the significance of the two criminals? Um, this actually fulfills a scripture in Isaiah, among a few others, but it, it fills Isaiah 53, verse 12, which says he's numbered with transgressors. Um, so in the way it fulfills biblical prophecy that he would be killed alongside sinners and criminals. But it's really interesting. So one of the criminals uh, mocks him and the other is saved by him. And so it, I want to kind of go back up to it because I think when I was reading it, I thought it was so powerful. Where is this right here? We're looking at Luke 23. Yep, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, verse 41, we are punished justly for what we're getting, for what our deeds deserved, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, Jesus answers him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So I just think it's so powerful. He mocks him, the other one doesn't. And, and then again, the other one gets um, saved right then and there on the cross. And significantly, I also read this from Guzik's commentary, that the sinner who trusts in Jesus on the cross goes to the same heaven as everyone else. So the sinner who, who trusts in Jesus literally minutes before his own death, after living a life that earned him the cross, puts his trust into Jesus and goes to the same heaven that all of us do, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord. 
Like that's the mercy of God right there. That's the grace of the Lord that um, Jesus can heal. Jesus can save you in a minute. Um, Another commentary mentions that Jesus affirmation of this man and his salvation today, you will be with me in paradise actually costs Jesus something. Um, it hurts Jesus even to say these words, just because what we know about crucifixion and the way that the body is is hanging, uh, exhalation and inhalation is almost impossible. And so for him to say anything is painful and it should be excruciatingly painful. Note, it should be that painful too for the criminal. <laughs> so the one who's asking to be saved is going through pain to ask him. The one who's hurling insults at him is also going through pain too. But Jesus sacrifices something in that moment to say, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, and I think that's important. He, he utters something that would have been particularly difficult in that moment of crucifixion, and he didn't have to. Did you want to add something? Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's what I mean. That man, he, I don't, we don't know when the criminals died on the cross. It could have been in the next minute after he said that. Oh, that's true. They broke their legs, but we still don't know how long after they broke their legs. The point is, um, we, we do know that he goes to heaven just like we will. So that's super cool. Okay. So why did darkness cover the earth? I'm also going to read this from scripture. Hopefully that's not taking too long, but verse 44, Luke 23, 23 verse 44 it says it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon so that's three hours of straight darkness it is nighttime in the middle of the day and that's when jesus died the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. jesus called out with a loud voice father in your hands i commit my spirit or eli eli laba sabachthani as it says in matthew so why did darkness cover the earth um Tondra, I wrote this and I totally believe it. We need to have a handle on this question because I think it's easy to get colored outside of the lines of scripture when we get like into it too deep. <laughs> like the Bible doesn't tell us specifically what happens. And I think that's important sometimes. Like I think God, we all have the student right to go research and try to figure out, you know, but if we get too caught up in like, was there an eclipse and was the moon over the sun in this specific way? And what time did this happen at? You know, I think we're losing the point. Like the point is Christ is dying on the cross and in his death, light leaves the earth. You know, um, we can easily just like read this too and be like, okay, darkness covered the earth. Like it's one of those things in scripture, you know, we read about, crazy stuff like fire tornadoes and God raising people from the dead and darkness covering the earth. And it's like in the context of scripture, sometimes I think we lose the, the magicalness of that, that it's like, whoa, <laughs> can you imagine if we walked out today at noon and it was dark for three hours, we would all be like, what's happening? You know, it was crazy that this happened. Like it's noon, it's lunchtime, it's the middle of the day. It's a bizarre occurrence. And actually, if you do want to go look it up, History does record this occurrence as well. Uh, Guzik in his commentary does quote, I think five Roman historians that, that talk about this happening at this specific time and the specific day and how bizarre it was and how they all tried to figure it out. So it's not just in the Bible that this happens. Um, but yeah, this is something that's not man-made. It's not manufactured. Um, it's significant. It's supernatural. Um, I think, I think that's what I'm thinking of in Hosea, but 
this, yeah, this is something that I think is just that moment where we see God just move in this moment where it's just crazy. So we have faith immediately after Jesus cries out because darkness covers the earth and then the temple curtain is broken into two pieces and Guzik attributes the torn veil to this. The tearing of the temple veil signifies at least two things. First, now man has free access to the throne of grace by the cross. And then second, no one should ever think again that God dwells in temples made with hands. So I think all of it together, the conclusion I want to leave you with is that darkness covering the earth and the temple being torn in two are both supernatural events to signify what just happened. They're supernatural. You could look at them in all sorts of different ways, but I think the point is almost like when, you know, when Jesus gets baptized and the Holy Spirit comes down on him, I think it's like that. I think it's God saying, this is it. And showing us that the temple, the, the veil is torn and darkness is covering the earth. This is serious. Yes. Oh, there is the earthquake. And the same thing, if you go check out Enduring Word, that's where I'm getting these Guzik quotes. I love his commentary. It's one of my favorite. We talk about him a lot at New Song. <laughs> but he does quote all of the different Roman historians that talk about the darkness. And they also talk about the earthquake that happens um, when the veil is torn in two. So I think it's interesting to just see where these things line up in history as well as the Bible. Because when it comes down to it, if you don't believe in the Bible, these things are in history. So how do you quantify them? Like, what are you going to, you know what I mean? So it's very interesting to look at those. Okay. So that covers the questions for, yes. Yeah. That's also recorded a lot too. That's the crucifixion and the questions we have for that. Is there anything anyone wants to talk about before we move on? Am I going too fast? Yeah, that's cool. So that's why there's the earthquake, and that's why there's darkness. This is the first time that Jesus and the Father were ever separated from each other. Right. And that's, and that's the response that takes place. It's like a multi-level supernatural event. Interesting. Yeah. For sure. Anyone else? Again, am I talking too fast? Great. Wonderful. I wasn't, and so I, I don't know if I'm doing it that way. <laughs> okay, let's move on. We're going to the resurrection now. We're looking in, reading for this, to prep for this, is just the entire chapter of Luke 24, which we'll get into that a little bit towards the end here. Um, focus verse is Mark 16, and then you're looking again at John 20. And again. Yes. Yeah, three hours, three days. Ooh, and I didn't even say that. That was in, that's in scripture, that it was for three hours. That's cool. I didn't notice that. Okay, so you're looking at Mark 16, John 20, the resurrection. Let's start with this first question. Why was it important for Jesus to rise again on the third day? There we go, leading right into that. Why was it important for him to rise again on the third day? Well, first of all, um, I just want to preface this. There are several reasons why that was important. And I'm sure if you went home and Googled this, you'd find several more. So <laughs> I'm just going to give you some of the ones that stuck out the most to me. There are several reasons. The first one is this. Jesus himself talked about three days. Um, Destroy this temple and I will build it again. And he mentions the sign of Jonah uh, being the belly of the fish for three days. See Matthew 12 verse 
40, if you want to read that again. So he says that he also prophesies three days of being dead in multiple other places. So we're looking at Matthew 16, verse 21, Matthew 27, verse 63. If anyone's writing these down, let me know and I'll slow down. John 2, verse 19. So those are all those places in the gospel where Jesus talks about it. And I have mentioned Hosea a few times, but I do believe there's also one in Hosea where it talks about three days. Um, so Jesus is keeping with his word that he is going to be dead for three days and then rise again, that the temple will be destroyed and he will build it again in three days. Also, the second reason is that according to Jewish tradition, a person's soul or spirit remains with his or her dead body for three days. And so part of the reason is that if he was not dead for three days, somebody could say that he wasn't really dead. Um, we now know that that is not true, <laughs> that there's no way that, you know, a dead person for three days would not be really dead, but they did believe that. And so at the time, if he had resurrected the next day, well, then a lot of people would probably say that, no, nope, he wasn't really dead because we know that it takes three days. So in a way he was honoring the culture of the time, but he was proving to everyone, no, I am actually really dead. And this is similar to Lazarus. Uh, the Lazarus story I think it's four or five days, four days before he comes and gets Lazarus. But in the same way, we always wonder like, well, why didn't Jesus just go right away? And, and I read a commentary that talks about how perhaps he wanted to wait the four days so that everyone knew that Lazarus was truly dead and he really did raise him from the dead. So in that same way, Jewish tradition says that three days is what it takes and that's what Jesus gave them. And then lastly, the last reason, this one's a little looser, a little different, but he died on Passover. So he was the spotless lamb for the Passover sacrifice on that Friday. Friday, I don't know what day it would have been really, but you know, he was the Passover on that day and then he resurrected at the beginning of the new week. And so there's sort of a significance there of Passover being over. Also, because it was Passover, his disciples and they talk about this in scripture. Um, had to take a Sabbath between his death and his resurrection. And that's the reason the women didn't go to the tomb for one whole day. They waited a whole day before they went because they were Sabbathing and they promised that they were going to keep the Sabbath and not go embalm him with spices and stuff yet. So I wonder if that hadn't been that way, would they have gone earlier um, and actually gotten to put spices and stuff on him instead of the way that it did happen where they show up and the tomb is empty. Just a thought. Right. After sundown as, on a Sabbath. Uh huh. Also, if you've ever watched The Chosen, it's a great way to think about Nicodemus, too. <laughs> the way they portray him is very cool. Okay, so that's that question. First, uh, why was it important for him to rise on the third day? He talked about it in many places in scripture, so he's fulfilling his own word and the Old Testament. Um, Jewish tradition says a person's spirit remains with their body for three days, and then also it was Passover, and there's a significance in him dying on Passover and then resurrecting three days later. Uh, the next question is this. 
what does Jesus mean when he says, stop clinging to me? And so I'm actually going to come up into this verse because I want you guys to see this. So Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. We're looking at John 20 verse 11-ish. I'm kind of going to paraphrase and then we'll start uh, later on. Basically, Mary's outside the tomb crying and this is where it happens. She meets Jesus, but she doesn't know it's him. She thinks it's the gardener. And then he says, Mary. And because he says her name, she's known by him. And she says, Rabboni. I always want to say Rabbi Oni. It's a weird word. She says Ravoni, which means teacher. And then I'm going to guess that she throws her arms around him because Jesus says, don't hold on to me. <laughs> um, but she must have grabbed him in that moment out of excitement. Verse 17, Jesus says, don't hold on to me for I have not ascended to the father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God, and to your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went with the disciples with the news and said, I have seen the Lord. And she told everything that he said to her. So the question is, why does he say, don't cling to me? Um, I believe that's in this Mark verse, actually. Oh, no, it's not. But it's just a different translation, I think. So he says, don't hold on to me. Same words, don't cling to me. So first of all, I want you guys to put a star by this question and go research it in your own time, because I think it's interesting. But also, I just think there's so much to unpack here. We just don't have the capacity. I really really want to encourage you to research it by yourselves. But my studies have led me to believe that he's saying, don't hold on to me right now. I have somewhere to go. Not don't cling to me ever. <laughs> I feel like he's saying, I feel like physically in that moment, Mary grabbed him and he said, hold on. I haven't gone yet. Like I've died and I now have resurrected. You're the first to see me, but I still have to go up to my father. And maybe he still at that point had to go down to hell as well. Like there's still things to be done for Jesus. And so he's saying to her, let go. I got to go. I've got things to do. Um, I really do. I, I take that literally, but I do think, you know, you need to study that out and figure out what you feel like and what you can find on that. Um, but yeah, some suggest that he still had to go to the father. He does say I'm ascending to my father. Is he talking about the ascension later or is he talking about in that moment? Um, but yeah, she was not to hold on to him because he still needed to send the Holy spirit. He still had work to do. And she happened to catch him really out of her faithfulness of just being there and being present Mary catches him like immediately, which is really, really, really cool. I think that says something about being present um, and looking for the Lord. But again, further studies needed. So put a star by that and go ahead and go do your own word study on that and figure out all the different things you can about that one. Anyone have anything they want to say? Okay. Yeah. Right, right. Um, okay, next question is this. Why did Mary and Peter doubt the resurrection at the tomb? And so I think it's interesting that it asks why Mary doubts because it doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem like Mary doubts. But then when you go back and read, it is kind of, it's kind of true. In verse 11, it says, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And she says, uh, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. But if she really did believe in the resurrection, would she not say, my Lord's not here. I think he resurrected. <laughs> like he said he would. You know what I mean? She's saying, where's the physical body? Where's his body? He died and I don't know where he is. So the first thing to her mind is not, 
that he resurrected. And so that is in a way doubt because it's not jumping to what he said would happen. And then if you go up a little bit, again, this is in John verse 20. I love that John writes this because I think it's like one of the most hilarious moments of John in the book of John. <laughs> but basically, you know, Mary's at the tomb um, and, and, you know, the stone's gone, Jesus is gone. So she runs back and she's like, guys, Jesus is gone. And John and Peter, you know, just immediately start sprinting to the tomb. Uh, and it says in verse three, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. John really thought that needed to be in there and reached the tomb first. John's like, I'm faster than Peter. There it is. Verse five, he bends over and looks at the strip of linen lining, but did not go in. Then Simon just goes right in the tomb. <laughs> so I, there's, this is a whole nother thing that doesn't answer a question we're asking today, but I think it's really funny that he wants everyone to know that he's faster than Peter, but at the end of the day, Peter's the one who has the boldness to go in and to get close. So anyway, so, but yeah, so they, they look and they, um, it says, finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first went inside. He saw and he believed. So they're looking at the linen. What that means is they're looking at the linen and all the things in the tomb that's empty and they believe Mary, Jesus is not here. But then in brackets, John puts this, they still do not understand from the scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead and they went back to where they were staying. So they're like really, really, really sad about everything that just happened. Their whole world is crumbling apart. It's a crazy time for them. Jesus is not at the tomb anymore. They run there. And literally Jesus has told them in all those scriptures I told you guys earlier that he's going to rise again. He's not in the tomb anymore. And everyone's just like, where is he? Where'd they put the body? Yeah, you of little faith. <laughs> but yeah, in this moment, right. Those are both the moment. I mean, John isn't mentioned in this question, but yeah, why did Mary, Peter, and John doubt? Like none of them understand. They're just confused. They just think his body is gone. And they're really just thinking about it in the physical earthly way. Where's his body? Where did it go? Somebody moved it. Somebody took it and it's gone. Um, they saw it. Yes. I was going to talk about that. Right. Right. Yeah, he did. And so, you know, I think it's easy to look at them and be like, what the heck? And that's how I feel about most of the people in the Bible. Like, you know, when you go back to the Israelites, like I said, the pillar of fire and all that, it's like, how could you not believe in God? He's raining chicken down from the sky. You know what I mean? Believe in God. But in the same way, most of us, when faced with supernatural or unusual, our mind is, I mean, we, we immediately go physical. It's so easy to go with what you know, what you can touch, what you can see, what you can feel and belief. It takes time, even if evidence is in our face. And so, like you just said, if Lazarus had not walked out of the tomb in front of their faces, would they believe him? Like if Jesus said, hey, I, ra I raised a guy from the dead the other day. You guys weren't there, but it happened. They'd be like, cool, Jesus. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? But they saw it happen and that's where they know, oh, this is the real deal. That just happened. Um, so, this is interesting though, though, because Jesus raised many people from the dead. So it seems like the disciples should have easily believed. Um, and now we have this full story. Like they don't have the full story at the time, but we have the full story that Jesus did rise from the dead and it's still hard for people to believe. So we got to give them a little bit of a break there because it's still not easy for us to fully wrap our minds around what happened. 
Okay, so the next question is this. What was Jesus's response to the two men on the road to Emmaus? Can someone say that better than me? It's Emmaus? Yeah, come on. Okay. Okay, so this is at the end of Luke. Uh, I think it's Luke chapter 24. I had it on my phone. I was reading it earlier. Yeah, Luke chapter 24. It's, it's really the end of the book of Luke. This really interesting story um, where two disciples are walking to the town of Emmaus and they kind of give us some of the disciples' names, but honestly, they're people like we've never really heard about. Um, and the men are just in a really rough place. Like they're walking to this town and they're super upset and, and notably so. And I think like, I do not want to compare Jesus's death and resurrection to things happening on the earth today, but I think we still experience this. Like to put this into context for us, a lot of things have happened in our world in the past couple years. And I personally have spent lots of time talking to people in my life about them. Like, oh man, did you see the war in Ukraine? And I can't believe this happened. And I, do you think that really happened? Or do you think this really happened? And you know, we're like trading stories and we're kind of trying to just like process and get our minds around some of the really extreme things we're seeing. And that's what these two men are doing. They just witnessed Jesus die and now his body's gone and nobody knows what's going on. And so they're talking about that. And I think they're comparing stories a bit of like what's true and what isn't true and what you think is going to happen. And this is what I believe is going to happen. And Jesus appears to them on the road, but they don't know it's Jesus because that's like how he's doing it when he's like appearing to people, you know, I don't know how he does it. Like if he looks different or if he just like if their brains just can't see him, but he's appearing to them. And he basically says like, what are you guys talking about? You know? And he talks to them for a little bit about what they're saying. And the, the biggest thing that his response is to them that I want you guys to see is that he points them to scripture, which is interesting because when Jesus is tempted in the desert, that's how he fights the enemy with scripture. And that's what he does to these men. He says, look at scripture, look at truth. What does the word say? What did I say? Like, what did Jesus say to you? What is the truth? Um, and he basically tells them that when hopelessness and uncertainty are around, scripture is the only way to discern God's truth and what truth really is. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the story, they get to the town and they're eating together and Jesus breaks bread for them. And when he breaks bread, they recognize him and then he disappears. And so I don't know if he just like disappears <laughs> or if he like gets up and leaves, but he's gone. And so that's the story in Emmaus. I would go and put a star next to that and go read that for yourself as well, because it's, it's a really interesting documentation of one of the appearances of Jesus after he is resurrected. Um, but again, for us, I think we can take away this truth, hopelessness and uncertainty. We got to look at scripture, like talking to each other is great. We got to look at scripture. And it says that the men are downcast and they are like walking to this town, just downcast. And so I, I see them being very depressed. And I feel like Jesus is saying that is not their response. Their response is to look at scripture, to find truth and to figure out what God really said. And so that's what happens in Emmaus. Go study that out. Put a star next to that. Luke 24, verse 13 through 35. Okay. That's all the questions on resurrection. Anybody? Open up the floor for y'all. We got some time. The, the story about the Emmaus is really gets me up. Uh, when they're walking down the road, and then them disciples are to their house, and Jesus, it says Jesus intended to walk on. Yeah. And they invited him to come in. And yeah. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have recognized him. Never. Wow. 
That's super powerful. Okay. I thought you had something. No. Oh, sorry. Yes. I, I could do this all day. So, uh, okay, we're going to move on. The Ascension, the reading for this is Acts chapter 1. Uh, the focus verse is going to be Acts 1, 9 through 11, um, and then Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So the first question is this, why is it important that the disciples saw Jesus ascend? First of all, if they didn't see him ascend, would it be written in the Bible this way? Probably not. We'd probably just have something about it, but they were there, just like when they saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb, they were there and they saw him, and that's why we have this account. Um, but the Christian faith exists that Christ is still alive. So Christ is still alive. If he vanished into thin air, like if he's standing ahead of them and he's like, I now go to my father, bing, he's gone. Do they know if he's still alive? It's just like when they go to the tomb and it's empty, they're like, oh my gosh, where'd he go? Right? Because they saw him ascend, they can say he was alive and I watched him ascend to heaven alive. And so that is the point is that he did not get resurrected to die again. Um, he was resurrected to ascend. And so they know where he went and they know that he was still alive. And that is the pillar of Christian faith. Christ is alive and there are witnesses to see that he did not die again. Um, he goes up to the father ascending into the clouds. This fulfills prophecy, but he also does this kind of like Elijah does in the old Testament. However, Jesus faced death and then ascended, which Elijah didn't. So you can't compare the two and say, well, yeah, that happened to Enoch and Elijah. And like, we've heard about this before. No, like Jesus died, came back and then rose. And that's what differentiates that. And then this really shows that he really did overcome death. Again, he didn't just resurrect to die again. He resurrected to live and to eternally um, live. And then also there is no tomb on earth that believers might build monuments in front of. So we can't make an idol of Jesus's um, location. Like we can't turn a piece of the ground into something that we worship because he ascended. So he's everywhere. The Holy Spirit is with us. Um, it's cool to go look at that stuff in Israel and like where he walked. I totally want to do that. I've never done it. Be awesome. But, you know, knowing human nature, I think Jesus knew that we would get obsessive if we were like, this is the spot. Like, you know what I mean? Where he vanished, like he ascended. So he is, he, we watched, they watched him go up and now the Holy Spirit is with us. So we can't. Exactly. There are witnesses there too, to, to testify that this happened. So. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, when, when we all come to the Lord, we recognize he's real. And yeah. That is that ever For sure. Um, the next question is this. What instructions were the disciples given before Jesus ascended? Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the commission towards the end. But basically, the mantle is passed from the master to the students. And this is, you know, we see this change in people like Peter, um, where after Jesus's ascension and after the Holy Spirit, they're like a whole new person, but he passes the mantle in that moment with the Great Commission, which again, we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but he gives them really the instructions that they are to receive the Holy Spirit and to do ministry. Um, receive the Holy Spirit now that he has ascended, the counselor is coming, 
there's someone greater than I who is coming, um, and then to do ministry, to do mission, and to find followers. So we'll get more into that in a second. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because at a salvation, you receive Jesus in you. So that's good. Okay. The next question is this. What was the role of the angels in ascension? I love this stuff. Divine counsel angels, let's go. Uh, <laughs> what was the role of the angels in the ascension? This is another fulfillment of who Jesus is. We see this idea of angels tending to Jesus in the desert after temptation, angels catching Jesus, angels um, being able to save Jesus. At the crucifixion verse, it says that a legion of angels could come at any moment. Like Jesus knew he had the power to call a legion of angels to save him. And so we hear this a lot. Um, and a few times in his ministry, we see him interact with angels, but in this moment, they really do. I feel like for the disciples in this moment, it was like, oh shoot, this is real. You're right. You could have called these angels at any time. Here they are. And they're with you. Um, so they're with him. He wasn't kidding. I really do think the disciples were probably like, wait a minute, why didn't you have these angels like come to the cross? Like, I like you know what I mean? It's just probably was mind blowing for them. And I think really important again to their experience and their testimony of what they saw and what happened. I also believe it was the glory of God on display and that this moment was um, just fantastic in a way that there was just like a glory to it that made it not uh, mourning not griefful. When he died on the cross and he was buried, there was a lot of lament and grief and crazy going on. But in this moment where he's ascending, it's joyful and exciting. And I think that the angels being there were kind of that transfiguration motion for a uh, moment for the disciples where it's like, Oh, this is, this is the Lord and this is special. And there's something significant about what's happening right here. So I do think that that was important uh, in that respect. Yeah. I have this power. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. Everything is on like display now after after the resurrection. So uh, last question here. What was the commission that Jesus gave? We're actually going to read this one. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, then Jesus came and asked, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So what was the commission that he gave? Write these things down. Number one, he said, go. Go into all the world because the message of of Christ is for everyone. And that's what tells us that. I mean, before the Gentile um, ministry even begins in Acts, we know that Jesus says, go, go into all the world. And I'm sure you got to think about it. I feel like for the disciples, that was still confusing. <laughs> he says, go into all the world. They're like, all of Israel, got it. Like, you know what I mean? And he's like, no, all the world. And they had to take that and think about that. So number one, go, go into all the world. Number two, make disciples of all nations. Again, same message there. All nations, all peoples, all nation needs to know about the kingdom. This message is for everyone. And that's what Jesus was saying. Make disciples. Number three, oh, go for it. Oh, you want to? Okay. 
Yeah. Number three, he says, baptize. So this is an important commission. Baptize into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and help people become a part of the family. Baptize them like you've seen him baptize. And number four, teach. Teach the commandments. Uh, the commands are to be taught uh, that, that people may obey. Um, and I don't just mean like the commandments of Moses. Teach what Jesus did on earth. Teach this message that Jesus brought. Go for it. All right. Well, that's all I have with the questions. Tonra, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we close? Well, yeah. I love you guys. Thank you for letting me teach to you guys today. I'm honored. All right, since Haley took every minute of time that I was going to have, I'm going to breathe through this and uh, we should be okay. So we're going to talk about the role of Jesus today. Um, so we've gone through a whole lot of stuff and we've only really scratched the surface. I mean, we really haven't gone in the depth of, of his life and, and gone to look at every thing that we can look at. Um, but hopefully the questions and the, and the, and the, and the, and the way we've looked at it kind of helps you to see um, through a tiny lens what the life of Jesus was like. Um, one of my, I don't know if we should have favorites, but one of my favorite books is actually the book of Hebrews. Um, because it kind of goes a little deeper into giving us the whole idea or the whole uh, subject of salvation and Jesus as he's positioned as our high priest. And I really, I really love that. You should, you should try and read the whole book of Hebrews and then go back and, and, and read on the tabernacle. And, and just, just look at the priestly roles that are happening around the tabernacle and also... Uh, looking at the book of Hebrews. And consequently, one of the classes we're going to have later is on the tabernacle. So if you have a chance to roll, enroll in that, you should. I think it's going to be phenomenal. Okay, so what is the role of a, of a priest? So the high priest was chosen from men, and he offered gifts and sacrifices for sin on behalf of men in relation to God. He was the mediator uh, between God and the people. And then Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And this is important. So the the Levites were the ones that were responsible for the work that was to be done in the temple. So they didn't have a vocational job like 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 hunting or farming or whatever. Their responsibility was to work at the temple and work at the tabernacle. So they had the priestly role. And, and God had instituted that uh, anybody who's going to be priest was going to come from that Levitical line. So you couldn't be a priest unless you were a descendant of the tribe of Levi. And so Jesus then becomes high priest, uh, but he's not, if you look at the genealogy of Christ, he's he's he is uh, the descendant of Judah. So he does not have earthly-wise the right to be a priest because he does not have the Levitical bloodline in him. So then that's why he becomes priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek meets Abraham and Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. Abraham is a tenth of all the things that he had to Melchizedek and Melchizedek functions in the priest as a priest. Now we don't know his origin where Melchizedek came from. In the same way with Jesus, he, he comes in and there's no, again, there's no father or mother decision to birth Christ. So in that order, uh, Jesus then is, is, is the priest in the order of, um, of Melchizedek. 
Um, how is Jesus a better high priest than the former priests? Man, okay, I could get so animated on this one. So, when the priest, let me let me backtrack. I'm going to give you a, a an image of the tabernacle. So, the tabernacle has three uh, divisions. There's the outer court, and then there's the inner court. And then in the inner court, there is a curtain that divides what is known as the holy place, and then there's the most holy place. And the most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant was where the glory of God was said to be to be seated. And so when the priest was, was going to go into the uh, most holy place, what they would do is, so he wears a garment, and on the hem of his garment is a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, all the way through to um, through the hem of his garment. And then they would tie a rope around the priest. So they'll tie a rope around the priest. So as he goes into the most holy place, if he is unworthy or he does something that is unworthy, he would actually be killed and he would die immediately. So the bell of the pomegranate is for him to move so that there's a clanging. So you can hear there's a clanging, there's a clanging. There's a, the clanging stops. He did. Okay? So now we know that he's dead because we can't hear the clanging, hence the rope. We're going to pull him out. Because if you all rush in to try and get him, you are going to die also. Okay? So, so that's the difference now with Jesus is that he is a high priest who is without sin and without blemish. And because he is without sin... And without blemish, he is a greater high priest than any high priest that walked into that most holy place. And he doesn't go into that place by the blood of an animal. It is by the authority of his own blood. Okay? So he is, uh, he, he, what he does is, it's not just, because what, what the high priest did is, he did that once every single year. Once every single year he's going in. Once every single year he's going in. Jesus goes in once and for all. Because his blood is perfect. So it doesn't cover the sin, it takes it away. As far as the east is from the west, the sin is removed. And so, again, this is like to our minds, okay? I, I, I have a daughter. I constantly have to say the same thing to get her to stop doing exactly the same thing. And I think sometimes we don't understand the power of what happened here. And we constantly try and grapple to get understanding of the fact that our sins are forgiven. And we look at the horridness of the things that we have done or the things that we're struggling with and fail to apprehend exactly what Jesus has done for us. And I think it's, 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 it's really speaks powerfully to me whenever I keep looking at it and saying, hey, listen, this guy, once he did what he did, he was done. He didn't say, okay, we're going to have to keep doing this because, you know, everybody is like, is like Tondra's daughter. They keep doing the same thing, the same thing over and over again. He says, one time is enough. And so your and my responsibility really in that is to believe. Okay. And that's, that's the job that we have. So again, that's, so that's the point I was putting, but how, what, how does this impact our lives today? Again, we keep, um, we keep we keep we we keep struggling. Is that the question I'm on? Oh, okay. So how does Jesus function as a priest for us today? So Jesus establishes this new covenant with his blood. So that's exactly what happens here. So 
The new covenant is firmly established when Jesus then offers his blood as atonement for yours and mine sin. And so now a new covenant is established. So that's why, because I used to wonder why we don't sacrifice animals anymore. Why, does, why, why is it that that doesn't happen? And it is because it's, it's under a totally new covenant. And, 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 and th- this covenant speaks of grace. It speaks of truth. And, and because of that grace, we're able to walk in such authority and such boldness in, in, in Christ that we, we don't grab a hold of. And, 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 and it's, 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 it's not, it's really not a simple thing that, you know, the human mind can just conceptualize and, and, and simply get, which is why the need for the Holy Spirit to really lay down in our hearts and minds for us to get the depth of what Jesus did and how he continues to function as a high priest for us today. So he lives to intercede on our behalf and he is able to save completely, completely um, um by his own blood, because he entered once and he entered once and for all. Okay, so what is an intercessor? Anybody want to jump on that one? Okay, all right. So that is what an intercessor, so the word means to come between, which means both to obstruct and to interpose on behalf of someone. Simply put, it is to make petition on behalf of someone. So that's what an intercessor is doing. They're making a petition on behalf of somebody else. And Jesus intercedes, the Bible says, his intercession as high priest is to those who would come to him, which is why we want to lead people to Christ and he would make intercession for them. Does that make sense? So when you're taking somebody, you don't take them to new song. Right? You don't take them to a person. You bring them to new song. You bring them to a person, but who you want to take them to is to Jesus. Okay? So all these churches, whatever places of ministry that you have, again, the whole idea is if 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 that ministry or whatever work is happening is not taking people to Jesus, then they will not be able to partake of what Christ is doing. Because you have to accept Jesus in order for you to receive the intercession uh, of Christ on our behalf. Not to say that he doesn't weep and cry for those that are not saved, but the function of that uh, atonement is something that you have to receive in order for you to get the benefits of it. If you deny it or you reject Reject it, then you're not going to get the benefits of it. Does that make sense? So again, we sh- the possible says, how can we continue in sin when we understand, or if we can g- grasp the concept of Jesus as our intercessor and high priest? How then do we continue to struggle in sin? And and and, and man, you know, you you look at this and you think about. I look at myself because it's easy to look at me and judge myself easily, even though I shouldn't, but it's easy to judge myself. And I see the sincerity of my heart to worship. I see the sincerity of my heart to follow Jesus. I see the sincerity of my heart to walk as closely as I can and to be who God has called me to be. But in the same place, I also see the struggles that I have, be it laziness, be it anger, be it judgmental, be it jealousy, that those things still 
at times just be a part of 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 where I'm at. And then I see Paul writing, and then he says, "Man, how can we how can we continue in 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 sin?" when we understand the depths of what Jesus has has done and and for me you know you kind of go back to to the garden so when he's in the garden of gethsemane and he he says to his disciples he says watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation because the spirit is but the flesh is okay that's the key right there that's the key right there the key is my spirit is willing my flesh is weak you get that and for me not to fall into the yearnings of my flesh or the pulling of my flesh i need to watch what is to watch? What you're doing right now is watching. Just being in this class is watching. When you come into church, you're watching. Okay? That's one way. Vicky, I know you, you want to say something. I, is that correct? Oh, I saw you do this. Okay. So that is one way of, of, of watching. Is what, what we're doing right now is watching. We're looking at the word again. We're turning our gaze away from the things of the world. Right now, nobody has, except when Haley talked about it, has been thinking about Ukraine, right? We're thinking, okay, this word, this word, this word, and that is watching. Then there's the watching of actually actively watching at what is happening around the world today and how that relates to what Jesus has said about life. Because when we watch, sometimes we watch with the wrong eye. We're looking at it, and we're only looking at it and seeing this person is bad, this person is wrong, this person needs to change, that needs to happen. You need to put this person in, or you need to take that down, or you need to do this. But we're not watching as the Lord would watch, which is with the spiritual eye, as in what is happening spiritually to the things that are happening in our world. In the same vein, with your own life, how do you watch? I'm stupid. I'm dumb. I can never get it. Right? That's watching in the flesh and not watching in the spirit. So if everything that happens to you, you're blaming yourself because I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not this. I like this. I like that. This didn't happen. That is not there. And that's why I end up the way I am. And you never watch your own life with the spiritual eye to say, if these things are happening, what could that be the result of spiritually? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. And, and, and what's important about that is, as she has said that, if you try to do that in the flesh, you are worn out and you stop. But when you do the watching and you allow the Holy Spirit, talk to the Holy Spirit and say, I need you to help me watch. And as you watch and pray, 
What does Paul say? Ephesians. Praying always in the spirit. Right? He's put on the full arm of God. Blah, 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 blah. And then he says, but praying always in the spirit. Because that's where your game changer is. Watching and praying in the spirit. Okay? So just, just be aware of... Uh, of of how that impacts us and how uh, we can stop continually contending and struggling with the f- flesh and actually begin to grow in the things of God and and if you if you set your mind on the those things set your mind on growing spiritually you'll start lessening the power of the flesh if you concentrate so much on trying to stop the flesh from being the flesh then you won't get as much growth as in when you set your mind on the things that are above. Okay, so let's talk about the name. Okay, if I left out a question, just go ahead and study that. Okay, um, what is the power in the name? Okay, who gets annoyed when people name their babies Jesus? I'm one of them. I'm one of them. I, I get annoyed. I'm like, what are you trying to do? And feel like, you know. Your baby ain't that special. But I get those emotions and I have to check myself. But the name Jesus was actually a common name. Okay? So it's not like when they named their baby Jesus, people are like, whoa, Jesus, oh my gosh. It, it wasn't like that. It was an ordinary name that 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 they were told that they to name this baby. And if you, even if you look in scripture, there are different people that are called Jesus, even Pray, uh, Paul talks about is it Paul? I think he says, uh, and Jesus, who's also known as Eustace, or who's called or who's called Eustace. So he, there is Jesus, and and so that name in and of itself is not a special name. Okay, what makes the name special is the man behind the name. And 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 I and I think that's important for us to understand that because again, Philippians two nine and eleven, God says, the Bible says God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that authority doesn't come from the fact that the name is Jesus. It might as well have been. Well, the thing is, is important because it means he saves his people. But it could have been any name that means the same thing. But what gives it power is that God is the one that has actually bestowed it and given it authority. So why do we pray in the name of Jesus? Okay. And I ask this question because uh, I want you to think about this. Do you think that people at the time of Christ prayed in the name of Jesus? They didn't. So when Jesus is walking on the earth, people are not busy going in the name of the Messiah who is to come. They're not, they're not doing that. And it, it was interesting to study it that it was only 200 years back, about 200 or so years back, when people actually started saying in the name of Jesus at the end of each prayer. And now it signifies I am wrapping up. When I'm praying, right? So if I pray, 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 and I say, in the name of Jesus, everybody goes, okay, that's the end. Right? It signifies a wrapping up. So, so why do we pray in the name of Jesus? So Acts 4 and 12. There is, in fact, no other name under heaven 
given among men whereby we can be saved except the name of Jesus. So when you're praying in the name of Jesus, understand this. You are putting the authoritative name in front of God for your petition to be heard or your your prayers to be answered. Because if you come in my name or your own name, that name has no authority or power. So essentially, I have terrible credit and so do you. So when you go to the bank to get your loan, we all gonna be denied. But when we say we're coming in this name that has perfect credit, we're not denied. That's what that means. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus because we're praying in the name that has been given the authority and the man behind the name is without sin or without blemish. So when we confidently approach the throne of grace, we're not coming with the confidence of what we did or who we are. We're coming in the confidence of what he did and who he is. And then X 4 and 12, so naturally whatever we do in word or deed, we ought to do in the name of the Lord Jesus. And who can use this name? Okay, who's ever heard about the seven sons of Sceva? Just Daniel and Paige, seven sons of Sceva? Okay, wonderful story. Love it. You know, you guys, the Bible's entertaining. But anyway, go find it. It's in the book of Acts. Uh Acts 19, 11 to 20. So these guys went and they're trying to cast out a demon. And then they say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out. And the demons go, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? And then the man turns around and proceeds to beat the leaving daylights out of these seven sons of Sceva. So the demon turns on them. So this goes to give us this understanding. John chapter 1, verse 12 to them that received him, to them that accepted him, he gave them the right. So without receiving him, without having him, then we don't have the right to use the name. So the name is really set aside for us who are chosen, whom he chose and who have accepted. And I think that's important, which is why you need to lead a non-believer to Christ for their life to be changed, for them to have the transactional power to use the name of Jesus. Okay? And then who is saved by the name? So anybody who would believe then is saved. Anybody who would believe is saved. But to use the name, you have to be in the covenant. Okay, closing it up. Prophecy fulfilled. So... What does Jesus' lifestyle following scripture teach us? Indeed, that men cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man, if you look at the life of Jesus, he says, I say nothing except that which the Father has given me to say. I'm going to do nothing except that which the Father has given me the authority to do. Everything he did was in accordance to the word. And how does he fulfill scripture? How does he fulfill, fulfill prophecy? So, Prophecy is a, is, is a guide okay. in the same manner as um, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a, uh, the lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That word, so the prophetic word, Jesus fulfilled it sometimes intentionally. Okay, Sometimes he would do it in order to fulfill the scripture. But in other times, 
as he just continued on his ministry, he was fulfilling the scriptures. So this is what I want you to understand from that. Has anybody been given a word in their life or a prophetic word of somebody said something about what Jesus has said or that they feel God is saying this about your life? Has anybody ever had that happen? Two, three, four, five? Too shy to answer even it's six people in the room. <laughs> okay. Sometimes that trips me up for me. Especially if somebody says, you're going to do great things. I just feel in my heart you're going to do great things. But what does it mean? What is a great thing? So sometimes the word comes up and it's got this, this, this grandiose, wow, but there's nothing in it that sets me up to know what the great thing is. Or change is coming. Change is coming in your life. Change is always, but, but change is always coming. Whether that person had told me change is coming or not, change is coming. Change is always going to be. So you understand what I'm saying? So you get these words that people speak or that people say that they believe that God has told told you this to, to not saying that God hasn't, but sometimes it trips me up because there's no actionable position that I can take in order for me to walk in that word. And so I want you to understand this. When you position yourself in the word of God and what God has called you to do by, by continually learning who he is and who I am, that I am going to fulfill whatever it is that has been spoken about me prophetically in life. But then there's some prophetic words that are conditional. If you do this, then this will happen. And those I love. Why? Because they're actionable and I can do something about it. And essentially, it's telling me that when I do the thing that I'm called to do, I am going to have success. Not success might or might not happen because sometimes that's true. Because if I say, Bobby, you're about to start a business, right? It doesn't follow that that business is going to be successful. But when I get a word that's actionable that says, if you position yourself this way or you walk and take up this position or this mantle or if you would feed the hungry, if you would do these things, then the blessing of the Lord is upon you. That's actionable. So this is why I encourage every one of you to read the book of Revelation. Whether you understand it or not. Because you know what it says? Blessed is he who reads these pages. So I'm just going to read it. And I'm blessed. It's actionable. So look for that. He says, whoever has done this to the least of these has done it for me. So if I feed the poor, that's actionable. Do you get what I'm saying? If I go to prison and feed those in prison, that's actionable. And if there's a blessing attached to that, the blessing is mine. And whoever gives, not just to give, but gives with a cheerful heart, there's a blessing attached to that. So what I'm saying is, when you talk about how Jesus fulfilled the prophetic word, he did exactly the same thing, where he would do that, and then he would say, yeah, but don't you know that it is written? That's why I've done this. 
in the same way, don't I know that this is in the Bible? That's why I feed the poor. Don't I know that this is in the scriptures? That's why I feed the widow, or that's why I give to this, and that's why I do that. Don't I know that that's in the Bible? And then your blessing is there. Does that make sense? I'm not taking away from you're going to do great things. You will. <laughs> you're going to do great things. I'm not taking away from that. But I'm just saying a word that is impactful is the one that gives you an action that you can take on which there's a, a blessing that is attached to it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Again, just yeah, just like with the the two men on the road to Emmaus, they said, "Did our our a bell is not burned as he was talking?" Yes. So if there's something you, you're going through, then yes, God can speak to that, and you can go, "Yeah, that's a confirmation." But sometimes you don't have that going on, like a person can be so deep in brokenness that even when they told a word they're not able to see the fruition or the truth of it they're not able to receive it because of the place that they're in so there is a point where you can be given a word and it's a confirmation of what's happening but there's also a time when it's like what like we went to a ministry one and they they gave us this these words a lot of prophetic words that they spoke over our lives i've forgotten three quarters of those things but they were awesome things and some of those were like, oh, yeah, I'm remembering that they, they spoke that uh, about us. So, again, it just depends. It's not always going to be that it is a confirmation of what's happening in your spirit because sometimes you're in a different place for when you hear that. Yeah, but you you are correct. In most cases, it's something that's already there, and somebody's just coming to go boom, and you go oh, yes. But then I've also been tripped up by that. You know, people would come and pray, and and I would never get anything, and I'm like, why is it nobody comes and gives me a word, right? But then again, there's a word that's in me that I can act upon without actually getting that person to come and or Daniel to lay hands on me and say, you know, blow. Does that make sense? Because I would get tripped up on that. You know, back in Zim, we're in Africa, so everybody's missionaries, everyone's coming to Zim for missionary. They would line up people, and they'd be praying, and everybody would get a prophetic word. They'd come to me, put my hand, and say, God bless you, and then go to the next one. I'm like, <sighs> you know, what happened to me? And then I start thinking that I'm, I'm less than because I wanted a word just like everybody else was getting a word. And so then I learned that <sighs> I got my Bible. I can read, and God can speak to me through that. And, and not only that, there is something that resonates within my spirit that I can go and run with, obviously, as long as it's not contrary to the word of God. Okay, final question. Did Jesus fulfill all prophecies of himself? When he was on earth, yes, but not all prophecies of Christ have been fulfilled. Right? Not all of it. He is still to fulfill some. It's going to be becoming. 
riding on the clouds, along with his hosts, take those that belong to him. So not everything has been fulfilled. When he was on earth, the ones that were spoken about his life on earth, yes, but there's still more. And that's what I want to leave you with as we round up this class. There is still more. There's still more that God has set for us. And he said greater works that you and I will do. And we are doing those greater works. He never stepped foot in the United States of America. We are here. We can continue to minister. He never stepped foot in Africa. Oh, he did in Egypt. But he never stepped foot in Zimbabwe. <laughs> That's safe. But still, ministry has to happen there. And you and I are the extension of the work that he began when he was on this earth. And that's what I want to leave you with today. I encourage you to go in and study more about the life of Jesus. Again, I, I want you to look at the hard questions. That's what I try to do is look at some of the hard questions. What does it mean that the earth went dark? What does that mean? Look at that. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. You can get revelation of it and understand it and begin to run with it and be able to communicate that with somebody in order for their lives to be changed. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for the class that we have had. And I just pray that as we go from here, Lord, the words that we have received, the encouragement that we receive, may we take it to heart. And may we go and, and continue to dive into your word and gain understanding. I thank you for your love. And I thank you for always being ready to, to, to break bread with us, always being ready to let us get into your word and understand it and see what you have set aside for us. May we go from here and build us up strength to, uh, to strength, line upon line, precept upon precept. We thank you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.